there and welcome to Fill Me Up. I'm Steve Walker and this is the show to help fuel your discussions about film. Um, obviously, it's been a bit of a troubling week this week, um, especially over in America um, with what's happening with George Floyd and um, and the protests that have come about it from it. And um, I, I, like, I'm not in a position to say anything about it, but I just wanted to kind of show my support for um, the Black Lives Movement because Black Lives do matter. Um, and so this week, instead of... So normally I would do Alpha Set and do uh, three films with the same letter, but this week I've taken um, three films from the Empire's uh, Empire Magazine's list of films by black filmmakers uh, that you should watch in 2020 uh, that they they publish sometime this week. Um, so yeah, so, I'm, so Alpha Set is kind of going... Being postponed for a week, so I'll be doing that next week. Um, but yeah, just to just to show my support because I'm being a, a, a white guy in in Britain. It's not, I, I I don't see that sort of thing day to day. But nobody should be treated like that, um, and um, like everyone should be treated equally. And and the police are are in the wrong really. So um, yeah, black lives do matter. Um, yeah, so that that's it. There's not really else, much else to say. Um, I know that John Boyega from uh, Star Wars fame and kind of Pacific Rim and stuff has been quite outspoken about it and did a big speech um, in London, which is great to see. Um, and he was kind of saying it's more important than my career. So even if my, my career kind of goes downhill because of this, like I don't care, which I think is fantastic. It's good. You, it's good to like get get these views out and to to kind of instigate this change because. It's definitely needed, um, but um, moving on from from kind of all that um, to uh, a film with a black leading star. In fact, it's the highest budgeted film with a black leading star. Um, it'll be Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Um, it's going to have a budget of two hundred and five million plus. Um, it's scheduled to come out this year. Um, there was some kind of woman in iron about whether it will be delayed and stuff, but. Um, it's still coming out on the 17th of July, or July the 17th, depending on where you are in the world. Whether you're uh, in, uh, well, I don't know, in the Americas, I guess. Who else says that? Alone? I don't know. Anyway, um, they apparently needed 80% of cinemas open to make it worthwhile. Um, but it's predicted that 90% of cinemas worldwide are going to be open. So uh, there's no worries about it. I mean, I was kind of a bit skeptical that this was going to be the first film after lockdown. I mean, because you would think like you'd go with a big franchise film, like, I don't know, like a Black Widow or a Mulan, kind of the tried and tested franchise and people are going to come out to that. But if there's going to be any original film that is going to get people in cinemas, it's going to be a Christopher Nolan film. So I think it's going to be fine. I think it's definitely going to kind of usher back in uh, people going to cinemas and stuff, depending on how we do it with kind of social distancing. Um, but I'm myself, I'm massively looking forward to it. I don't know anything about it. I haven't seen any trailers. Apparently there's maybe time travel in it, but who knows? Um, I mean, I don't want to, so I'm going to stay clear of trailers, but I am very, very excited for this. And, um, especially in the kind of the current times, it's really good to have a film of this kind of budget and scale, having a black leading star in John, so John, John David Washington, I think, Denzel Washington's son. So, yeah, that's that's really good to see.
Moving on to Alpha Set, which isn't cl- isn't really Alpha Set this week. We're bending the rules. Um, but yeah, if you just send on Twitter, I put up the list of um, films that I was watching this week. Um, if you haven't seen that or you want like to see that again, that's uh, at All Out Walker. Um, the first film that I watched this week uh, was The First Purge. When I say The First Purge, I don't mean The Purge. It's called The First Purge, not The First Purge film. It's, it's the film The First Purge, not The Purge. You know what I mean. Uh, it's the story of the first canonical Purge in the Purge universe. It's sold as a social experiment for people to kind of release their anger and issues. But there's possibly, when I say possibly, really definitely... Uh, some more goings on behind the scenes. Um, it came out in 2018, had a budget of 13 million, uh, and made 137 million, which is no surprise. It's it's a big horror franchise. It's the fourth film, even though it's the first purchase, the fourth film in the franchise, and it's a Blumhouse production. They have their way of doing things, small budgets, and they make a lot of money, and it works for them. So, uh, and they make good films generally. So, I'm happy with that. It's got a 5.2 on IMDb, 55% on Rotten Tomatoes. I give it a 6 out of 10. It is kind of a bit average. Um, but in my opinion, I feel it should have been the first Purge film as well as called the first Purge. Um, but, I mean, it explored the pop, like the public opinion of the Purge and kind of the social experiment behind it um, rather than kind of the way that the other films have been kind of it, it. This is how it is. It's just this is you are kind of dumped into this world where the Purge is happening. You kind of get the almost like the backstory of the Purge. Um it's written by James DeMonaco, who's written all the other Purge films, so it keeps the, the tone of the films and the world consistent, which I think is good for these sort of franchises. I mean, it's not a particularly storied franchise. There's not a lot kind of to it, but I think it helps in order to kind of keep that, that feeling, keep that tone going and that consistency. I think it's quite important. Um, like I say, it was quite a small budget, so there's no big actors in this. The only person that I recognised was Marissa Tomei, um, who plays Aunt May in the in the MCU with Spider-Man. Um, but I think that works well for the film, because I feel that you you sometimes when you've got big actors in things, um, like you clearly we're going to have a big actor in this, but um, when you do have big actors, I feel like you sometimes it's hard to not just see like a Tom Cruise or a Brad Pitt, and it's hard to kind of get, immerse yourself in the character in the world but if they're a kind of a no-name person you haven't really seen them before then it's quite it it's good and it helps you to feel more for the characters and empathize with them more or sympathize with them more probably um all the actors involved i thought did a really good job um in kind of helping you feel for them um and kind of yeah i, th- I just think that they did it well i mean it's there's nothing particularly too testing because it's it's just kind of a horrorist horror action sort of film so but um i think they did a good job um for what it's worth um there was some use of trackers in this film that kind of implanted trackers and contact lenses that i worked really well kind of both in the story of the film and the world of it and also kind of in in the watching of it and kind of it added to the horror elements of it the contact lenses were kind of had lights in them and like some there were different colors depending on who you were like some people had red ones some people were blue some were green whatever but i feel that they kind of provided this sort of abnormal inhuman quality which i think is always kind of a bit scary like if something's just slightly off um about a person and i thought that's quite it worked really well i mean the film as a whole 
it's technically a horror film, I guess, but it's not like a terrifying horror film. Like it's more like dark action, um, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, I don't that like I do enjoy some horror films, but I also enjoy a lot of action films, and I think that that it it works well. Um, what it's got going for it, I think the first one that I saw was the Purge Anarchy, and I think that kind of I really like the the idea in the world, and I like the way that it was done. Um, so yeah, I, I just really like these films. They they continually use masks in these films, which again adds to the kind of inhuman quality and and the atmosphere um the costume designs in in a lot of these films are really good like it's you can tell that it's kind of people have fun just coming up with masks and costumes and things there was like a there's kind of like weird policeman people there's like a star like almost a nazi person some kkk stuff it's it it works really well um and like i say it adds to that sort of the terror and the atmosphere and that inhuman quality um, there's a very interesting because this is the first canonical purge. We know it's because it's a prequel. We know that there are further purges after this one, and I think it's an interesting, especially considering kind of how the film starts and kind of how the public's perception is to the purge. I think it's interesting to see kind of how they do the workaround for the purge and sort of the, the behind the scenes stuff because it's. I think it makes it quite interesting. It adds it adds something a bit different rather than kind of. Um, just having people trying to survive and stuff, it adds like another element to it. You've got a couple of different things going on, which I think works really well. Um, and I think it's almost in the, in the times that we're in, it's kind of a bit scary because it, it's almost like a little too close to home. You feel like it could almost it could almost happen, like in a way. Um, but um, I found that some of the characters, like I was saying before, like you you kind of immerse yourself in them, and I thought they had some really good character arcs. Um, there's some people that are kind of a bit more vengeful, but then they realise that they can't actually kill and they kind of don't feel that vengeance anymore. There's a kingpin that's fight that normally would kind of step step on people in order to kind of get what he wants. But then when the neighbourhood's sort of attacked and in danger, then kind of rises up to try and save people. And I think that's that was really good. And I think this film did really well at sort of making you feel for those characters and kind of root for them, even though they're, they're might be a criminal or or whatever like they're they're very good at kind of conveying that sort of just people trying to get by a little bit and trying to get returned to the status quo of what the neighborhood was um but yeah um we thought we'll go to the uh, the facts facts machine uh, and go and grab some facts so the first one that i found was um there is, uh, I noticed this in the film, there is, there's a lot of references to Trump, there's a lot of sort of like piss takes of, of real life politics, especially Donald Trump, and there's a clear reference with, they have like a pussy grabbing moment, and I just thought it was like, it's almost a bit on too on the nose, but I think it was fun that it was in there. Um, I looked up, this film uh, has a kill count of 130, which I, I checked some other films to see where that stacks up in comparison and that is more than rambo 3 which is the one where well i've not really seen any rambo films but as far as i'm aware it's the worst one the one where he kills a lot of people so it's it's got a higher kill count than a rambo film which is crazy um so it's like in a generic horror film you wouldn't have you wouldn't have that many kills in it you'd have like 10 maybe but yeah this has got 130 and it kind of equates to a kill every 45 seconds which is staggering um especially when you consider like there isn't like the purge doesn't start till about i don't know 
40 minutes in. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty good. Um, Ratimi Paul, who played a character called Skeletor in the film, who's a bit kind of, I don't know, a bit uh, a bit crazy. Are you allowed to say that anymore? He was a bit crazy. Um, had some problems. Um, but when he did his uh, audition, uh, he actually rode the New York City subway wearing his full costume and makeup. I don't know how that happened, but he... He was wearing it, and I so, and he was pretty freaky looking in the, in the film. So I reckon people on this, I, well, I tried to think what people thought on the subway. It would have been very, very freaky, um. But I guess like gets you in the character and stuff. So I, I think I thought it was quite fun, um. But yeah, overall, I think it's it's a good film. It is kind of average, um, considering there has already been three purge films. So it's not kind of this unique sort of idea anymore like it's kind of we've seen it quite a lot you've got three films two seasons of a tv show um i it would have made a terrific start to the franchise i know the first one kind of people weren't so hot on it when it first came out and they were like oh yeah the premise is really good but they didn't really do anything with it it's just a home invasion film and i think this would have been a way better start to the franchise if it had been the first one if it was the first purge the first film it would have been ace um and then you can kind of go off in different directions. You can maybe do a home invasion. You can maybe do something else. But I think, uh, yeah, I think it's a great. I still think it's pretty good, and I still think it's worth a watch. And if you like those the purge films and that sort of thing, then it, it's definitely worth a watch. Um. So yeah. Second film that I watched uh, is Fruitvale Station. So this is the true story of Oscar Grant the Third, who on New Year's Day in two thousand and nine was involved in a tragic accident with the police. Uh, it came out in twenty thirteen. Uh, had a budget of just nine hundred thousand dollars, which is, which is amazing for a film like this. Um, and it made seventeen million, so it made a lot of money. Um, but I mean, it's not necessarily about that. Um, it's got a seven point five on IMDb, ninety four percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and I give it a nine out of ten. It's fantastic. It's but it is heartbreaking. I heard a lot about it at the time when it came out. I didn't get a chance to see it unfortunately, but um, I'm really glad that I did. Um, obviously, critics really liked it and were really impressed with it. Um, audiences maybe not so much but um i think it's it's very well shot it's very well directed by ryan coogler who uh went on to do black panther um it's kind of, it's very low budget um and it's sort of low quality in a way in terms of kind of camera and stuff um but i think it works it helps with immersing kind of yourself in the story and in the characters there's because there's no flashy visuals or like flashy cinematography to kind of distract you from the drama that's happening um and to distract you from the absolutely tremendous performance by michael p jordan it's probably the performance that put him on the map um kind of made him the big name actor that he is um he did a he just does a great balance at kind of trying to be the nice guy in kind of these the hard times and in the environment that he's in where it kind of pays to to go against all the things that he wants to do and believes that he knows he's right. Um, and he's, he was very good at sort of showing multiple emotions during scenes, kind of being distant when he's talking to his family and trying to be like kind of happy around them, especially with his daughter and things like that. And it's, I think it just, he was just fantastic. Um, it does a very, very good job of kind of following Oscar in his life. Um, you see that he's just this normal guy that he's just trying to do his best while he's dealing with the bad hand that he's been dealt. Um, and the surrounding cast kind of promote that. They're really good. 
the it shows that he's clearly like a popular guy that people clearly love him um and they kind of all worked well in order to create this sense of togetherness and kind of respite from what he's kind of dealing with and the struggles that he's got um there's a number of times where the sound is muted and you're kind of just watching like you can hear sort of the hubbub um around of kind of people kind of laughing and joking and talking and just just being together which is kind of it reminds me of kind of something that my my grandpa used to say where he would um just sit back and just enjoy the conversation and he just enjoyed being part of kind of a loving family and he he would he used to say that he just likes to listen to us chunteron which i think was wonderful and this you you kind of had that at times where you had that muted sound um and it kind of gives you those warm feelings that you want. Um, I think this film is perfectly paced. It's an hour and a half. You don't need it any longer. It's kind of you're never bored in this film. I mean, the more you go on, the kind of the more tense you get. Because right at the start, they show you some of the actual kind of footage that people caught on their mobiles of the actual incident in real life. Because it's it's a true story, um, and it kind of shows the events up to the incident uh, that happens, and um like the fact that you know what's coming and that you know that it this story doesn't end well it kind of makes it harder to watch and like the heart further you get going the film they're kind of more tense because you're like it's coming it's coming and then because you because you're just kind of watching them and watching their life and watching this guy and interact with his friends and family and try and get through life and and it's just it's a really compelling drama and you just rooting for him but then you just know that it doesn't end well. And the incident itself, it's a tough watch, man. It's, it's, it shows the brutality and the racism that people are kind of experiencing up close. It's very well shot and executed. Um, I mean, fair play to the actors because it must have been quite hard for them to shoot it. Um, the it, It's a weird situation because it very much seems to escalate very, very quickly. And there seems to be no real reason but that's, I, I guess that's sort of is how it is. That's why people are so confused and so angry because these things sort of go start at nothing and then they just ramp up massively and, and lives are taken um, because of it. And I think this film um, should be, I, I think it's a must watch really because it, it, it kind of helps to actually capture what is happening uh, rather than you kind of being distant and just seeing things on the news and not really feeling and understanding you're right there in the moment you're seeing all the emotion that's happening you're seeing how you see it you're just seeing it all like there's no pulling of punches it's just all there up front and it's it's horrific and i think it's this film does a great job at showing that and i think people should more people should watch this to see it and i think that's that's why it it got the acclaim that it did um and so yeah i think it's just great um but yeah, if we go back to the facts machine, um, Octavia Spencer, Octavia Spencer. Yes, that's what I've written down. Is that the right name? Octavia Spencer is the name that I've written down. That doesn't sound right to me. Octavia Spencer. Uh, what's her name? Fair enough. Uh, that's what I've got written down. So that, let's go with that. Octavia Spencer, um, who played Oscar's mum, uh, she gave up her salary on this film so that Ryan Coogler director could actually finish the film in budget. Cause I guess if he went over budget, then uh, there'd be kind of possibility of uh, studios kind of pulling funding and the film not getting finished. So I think it's, 
it just shows kind of how passionate people are about this this topic and i think that it's just really good uh ryan kugler wrote this screenplay with michael b jordan in mind um which i think was really nice they clearly work well together because they went on uh, after this to work in black panther i think they and uh, they also work together in creed so i think they they just work together they gel together um and uh yeah ryan kugler clearly kind of knows the strengths and weaknesses of michael b jordan i think it's when you get kind of a, a combination like that, it you, you want to. It's really exciting to see the, the sort of stuff that they make. Um, Oscar's mum, in real life, so not Octavia Spencer, but actual his real life mum. She cameoed as a teacher at Oscar's daughter's school, which I thought was a really nice touch. Just kind of helps to kind of bring it all round. But like I say, this film's a great film uh, and a must watch, and it can really show the impact and the heartbreak that's involved in incidents like these. Um, so yeah. Uh, moving on to our last film uh, today, um, it's called See You Yesterday. Uh, basically, a couple of teenagers invent time travel packs, and then they go back in time, save a man- family member from a tragic incident, but they find that it's not quite that easy. Uh, it came out last year, 2019, on Netflix. Um, because it came out on Netflix, there's no budget info, and there's no box office info, obviously. Um but I can tell you that it it got a 5.1 on IMDb. But it got a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. I give it an 8 out of 10. I thought it was a very, very good, smart film. Um, the thing about this film is the two leads basically make this work. Um, Eden Duncan Smith and Dante Critchlow. Um, they've got a lot on their shoulders, but they do a great job. They played the roles in a short film because this was originally a short film made by the same director in 2017 and so they've had a little bit of time to kind of work with the director on it and i think it pays off they 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 absolutely smash it they are really good they nail the emotional beats and they nail the fun aspects of it when they need to be fun and i think they are just incredibly relatable and likable um and like i say they are they have a lot on their shoulders um and Young actors are notoriously known for not necessarily being that good, but I think the, these guys smashed it out of the park. Uh, the direction and cinematography are, are, are very good. I think um, they do... Like, this is this clearly has to be quite a low-budget film, but I think they do really good on what budget they have. They kind of do some interesting camera movement. There's a few slow-motion shots. There's some... Tran- some interesting kind of transitions and kind of turning cameras upside down and walls coming through and stuff. And I, sorry. <coughs> and I think that keeps it all interesting. Um, the time travel itself, like when they pop in and out, uh, it looks really good. Um, there are, there is some CGI, uh, with that, with the time travel at times, which I think they didn't really need to put in. I think it looks a little ropey, but I don't think it detracts from the film at all. Um, it's just, uh, just a little bit in there. Um, the family um, are all the the cast that are they're playing, kind of the family members and friends. I think they're all really great. They really help to flesh out kind of the relationships between everyone and show how much everyone cares about each other and so much so that they can kind of know when something's off with each other. And I think they're really used to good effect. Um, so yeah, the the opening of this film it just captures you immediately. There's a sense of fun. There's a sense of camaraderie. As soon as the film started, I just thought, I know I'm going to like this. There's just some smart kids doing some smart stuff. And I think 
because I've got a background in science, I think I love a film that's just science and problem solving. And it because I have this kind of a love hate relationship because the reason why you get into science is because you love problem solving, you love how, knowing how things work and trying to figure things out. But then you get bogged down in kind of reports and all sorts of things and kind of oh you're just doing the same old tedious stuff again and again and again, just getting like just grinding out results. Whereas it's fun to see actual sort of science take place people thinking things out and working through problems i mean it's pro i say probably it's definitely not scientifically accurate um but who cares it's it's a film and it's very and it's nice to see and kind of i think the the fact of kind of seeing the problem solving and stuff that's basically the martian the martian in it in itself was just a film of people doing science and i think that's why it's one of my favorite films ever um and this film had that, and I think it worked really well. They, they, two actors kind of nailed it. They seemed to know what they were talking about, and I think it, it's great. Even if, well, they probably wouldn't have done, but uh, I think they pulled it off really well. Um, like I said before, the emotional beats, they work really well. It's not too heavy, and they don't dwell on it too much. Kind of like the characters, they kind of don't get bogged down in it, um, and they just kind of move on with the time travel and trying to implement that change. And I think it, it works really well. A lot of this, the tone and kind of the feel of this film is is relying on kind of the two main characters uh, and the girl especially. And I think that they sort of, it, it just works really well. They managed to get, nail that sort of beats and kind of when to be sad and kind of take stock and when to kind of kick it into gear and try and move on and kind of make the changes. Um. There is an ambiguous ending in this film. I immediately, my immediate thought when I when it ended was, oh, we've, we've stopped now. But what about the end? Like, what happened? And then I was like, actually, when you think about it, it, it worked really well because it does make sense. The main character is not going to give up. The way that they, they built the time travel into this film, the mechanics of it, means that they don't have to give up there's no sort of problems of kind of paradoxes and things like that and i think like you you could have gone on for longer this film is like an hour and 20 minutes but you you could have gone on for like two hours but you kind of run the risk of kind of getting a bit stale the films that kind of like groundhog day and edge of tomorrow that kind of had that kind of going back and forth back and back and back and back they have larger stories to them this is more of a character-driven story they just want to do this one simple thing and i think it it kind of works well um kind of ending when it did because you understand the character enough to know that they will not stop basically until they've got until they manage to save them so i think it, it in that way it kind of works really well um but let's go back to the fax machine um Guess who's in this film? It's only Michael J. Fox from Back to the Future. I know, Michael J. Fox. He's in the, He's in another time travel film. Uh, he plays a science teacher in it, and there's actually a reference, another reference to uh, Back to the Future because he gets to say the infamous line by Doc Brown, "Great Scott," which I think is great. I think the, it's amazing that they got an actor of kind of his renown in this film and i think it's such a great touch i'm so glad he's in it he's only in it for kind of a short time towards the start but as soon as he popped up i was like oh my god that's michael j fox and i was like oh that's brilliant that's amazing i think that they 
the fact that they got him in it was just fantastic. I think obviously he wouldn't have been in the short film, but I think the fact that he is in this is just it's just amazing. Um, he also is reading a book called The Kindred by Octavia Spencer. The reason why I was confused about Octavia Spencer before is because of this fact as well. But maybe she did write this book as well, which I think will also be a nice touch and about a nice little loop around, which I'm going to say that she did. And it is. So it's the same person. Or it's, or it's coincidence and they're just two different people with the same name. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, Michael J. Fox's science teacher is reading a book called Kindred by Octavia Spencer, which is about an African-American woman who time travels to stop oppression and slavery. So, again, kind of mirroring what's happening in the film. Not necessarily stop on oppression and slavery, but kind of African-American uh, people time traveling. Um, this is uh, the director, Stefan Bristol's first film um he he did it under the kind of the tutelage of spike lee who's made a lot of kind of films especially in sort of the black culture um and stefan bristol worked on spike lee's last film i think it's his last film uh black klansman which is a fantastic film also starring john david washington bringing it back around so many loops um but i think this is a great start for him it's a great great start and i think that there, there could be many more good things to come from him so i i'm looking forward to it it's definitely worth watching people have compared it to back to the future talking about america j fox i don't think that's inaccurate there's a bit more heart to it a bit more weight when i say heart there's a bit more weight to it a bit more impact um it's got kind of a bit there's less kind of fun and about it there is well, that's i don't know what i'm saying you know what i mean you know what i mean it's fun in, t- in, in the pieces that it needs to be fun, but overall it's kind of a bit more of a serious film um, rather than Back to the Future. Um, Back to the Future is a bit more whimsical. Um, but I think the fact that it isn't as whimsical works well for the film and benefits it. And, it, and the fact that it's on Netflix means that it's very easy to access. So go out there and do it. We're moving on to... A film that wasn't. Uh, for those that aren't aware, this is uh, where I take a film that was halted at some point during production, pre-production, produ- actual production, post-production, whatever. It's a film that didn't get made for some reason. Um, it's, it's money. Money uh, makes the world go around. Money makes uh, films get made. Money is the thing that generally makes these films fall down. But it's interesting to find out about all these things. Um this week, uh, you will know, because you have seen it in the title, we are talking about Halo. Um, it's a film that I was very much looking forward to seeing. And it's a film that I was kind of looking forward to talking about. Um, uh, for those that aren't aware, Halo is a video game franchise that launched the Xbox console, the Xbox brand and everything. Um, it's their flagship franchise. It sold a million units in a few months. And then by 2005, which is when films, the talks about the film started, it sold 13 million units and made $600 million. So this is a big thing. Um, it's definitely worth making a film of. It's kind of this big space war epic. Uh, it's got some really good lore, some really good story. Um, and I think one of the best chances of having a video game film success. Um, so Microsoft... Uh, back in 2005-ish, uh, they decided they were going to make they were going to capitalise on the success of 
Halo, the video game series. And they paid $1 million to Alex Garland to write a script. To write a script? To write a script. There's a T in that word. Um, Alex Garland, um, you may have heard the name before. He wrote 28 Days, 28 Weeks Later. He wrote Dread. He made, He basically directed Dread as well. He wrote and directed Annihilation. He wrote Sunshine. He makes a lot, a lot of very good sci-fi films, basically. But he said that he found it quite hard to write the script because you don't get that sort of creative freedom because Microsoft were kind of not wanting to let their baby go. They wanted kind of control over this thing. So they were overseeing his writing. And he was kind of having to write in a box. Because um, I think when he... Because Dread is a kind of a property in its own right. And so he'd had to adapt that. But I think that he was given at that point kind of a bit more kind of creative freedom to, to work within that. Um, but uh, with Halo, he had to kind of do what Microsoft wanted. Apparently, the script was very kind of predictable and very video game-like. There was kind of a lot like mission one we're going to do this go there do this do that um and kind of the character of master chief who's kind of the main central focus he had no agency and they he was very much like the blank video game character that you that you are in when you're playing um apparently he had a few flashbacks to kind of flesh out the character but i mean it's it's kind of a weird thing of kind of having to flesh out a character that basically is just a blank slate because the player is that character so um but apparently it was a very good apt- adaptation in terms of action and kind of doing a beat for beat uh adaptation of the first halo game so it definitely would have made money but i think people are a bit disappointed because that's all it is it's just kind of a bit flashy and kind of it's for people that aren't aware of the, kind of the immediate story of halo one like it would be very good for them but in terms of kind of a film and a rich kind of having character depth and stuff it wasn't as great um but in terms of what it would have been in terms of the story um in 2552 humans are in a space war with a conglomerate of aliens it's a great word that isn't it conglomerate um known as the covenant uh the humans or the unsc as they are called find a planet with a strange artificial moon called a halo uh halo turns out to be built by an alien race um, and they are basically like you could destroy all sentient life in the galaxy. Um, so the super soldier known as Master Chief is sent to stop the Covenant and destroy Halo. Um, he's kind of on the ship when they find it enough. But uh, that's that's semantics. We don't need to worry about that. Um, but Microsoft then they had this script. They decided to take it to big all the big studios. They wanted they wanted this thing to be massive, so they didn't take it to any smaller studios. They didn't take it to a Miramax who at that time were run by Harvey Weinstein, boo, get in the bin. But they took it to Fox, Paramount, uh, obviously not Sony because they own PlayStation, don't want them making it. But um, yeah, big big companies. And they didn't do it in any normal way. They had a bunch of UNSC Spartan soldiers march in, including a Master Chief. Uh, They marched in, took the script, and a sheet of terms they took it into a boardroom and then they gave them six hours to decide um so the terms were well when i say to decide decide whether to make it or not the terms were that microsoft wanted 10 million dollars up front in terms to make it like a deposit 
and they wanted 15% of the gross of the box office, which is absolutely unheard of. Um, and Microsoft didn't want to fund anything, which is even worse. And so it was no surprise when hardly anyone went for it. So I think what Microsoft, the only the only two companies that sort of went for it a little bit were Fox and Universal. Microsoft were quite happy about this. Uh, the way that it works in the video game industry and the way that they thought it was going to work and the way they wanted it to work was that everything's kind of done with one studio. So they thought, oh, we'll pit these two studios off against each other and they'll try to outbid us, outbid each other. But film industry doesn't work like that. They go they go have a drink, they go to a coffee shop, they go to a bar, they go to a restaurant, they go to someone's house, I don't know, they may, they may go to a car, I don't know. Well, they have a drink together, they shake hands and they go, yeah, let's just do it together. So that's what they did, Fox and Universal teamed up. Microsoft weren't necessarily happy about it, but uh, that's what happened. Fox uh, decided to have foreign distribution rights and Universal had US or domestic uh, distribution rights. Um, and the deal was that Microsoft got $5 million, not $10 million, and they got 10% of the growth. So they didn't get what they wanted um, at all, really. But they got to, they had the potential to make it. Um, and especially considering their terms and how ridiculous it was, the fact that they got that was uh, impressive enough, especially considering they didn't want to uh, shell anything out. So you've got a script, you've got some production companies. What do you need? You want someone to direct it. And the person that they wanted was Peter Jackson. Uh, so he was brought on board, but he didn't want to direct. Um, he came back off the back of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but he, um, which obviously went down really well. He didn't want to direct it, but he was still wanted to be involved. He wanted to produce it. And he wanted Weta Special Effects, which uh, is the New Zealand-based uh, effects team that did a lot of the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, so they were brought on as well. And Peter Jackson suggested up-and-coming director Neil Blomkamp to direct uh, at that time, he hadn't done anything. He'd done a few short films. But he would later go on to do District 9, Elysium with Matt Damon, and Chappie. Um, as well as uh, having a failed Alien sequel go in the bin as well. Uh, Blomkamp was very enthusiastic. He said, I was genetically cre created to direct Halo. Um, which is a big word. He played the game before. Um and he was massively enthusiastic about it. So uh, you got a Peter Jackson, you got a Neil Blomkamp, everything looks good. Um, Weta went to work, they built some armour, the weapons and vehicles, um, which is good stuff. Blomkamp worked on it for five months. Um, and yeah, everything looked great. There was some uh, actual, some adverts shot for Halo 3, I think was coming out at the time, and some kind of other short films that Blomkamp decided to make using the weapons, armor, and vehicles that Weta built. Um, you can see them online. It They are very good. Um, and all the Weta stuff looks amazing. Like, having played the games myself, I think, I think it, they've absolutely smashed it out of the park. They, they look amazing. Um, but Fox, not too happy. They didn't like the way that Blomkamp was going, um, which was a kind of a gritty war film. It was kind of... If you if you see those adverts, probably because of the small budget and they were adverts or whatever, they're very they're like POV, so they're kind of like almost like fan footage sort of stuff, and they're very gritty and there's and it's it works well, but I guess it's not kind of 
it's not exactly like commercially like the biggest thing that that will get made i don't know so uh there was a few fallings out uh and i say a few fallings out there were massive fallings out because blomkamp has gone on record to say i will never ever work with fox again there were some other swear words and stuff involved but i will have uh, taken them out um he's also suspected tim rothman who was the head of fox at the time that he would have got rid of him um if he if he'd been able to like as soon as he came on board um but obviously he couldn't because it was a joint joint venture. Um, Universal and them, they were still happy. They'd shelled out $12 million so far to kind of help Weta pro- progress. And for script rewrites um, from none other than D.B. Weiss, or Weiss, who uh, is one of the big creators of Game of Thrones, the series. Um, but also from another couple of writers, Josh Olsen and Scott Frank. Um but Universal, they obviously shelled out twelve million. Fox hadn't really done much because they didn't like it. Um, but Universal were like, "Well, it's a joint venture, so you need to give us some money." Um, Fox obviously still didn't want to pay anything, so Universal were like, "Well, we need to pay some of the producers less because to get to lower this budget, then if you're not going to stump up any money." So when he says producers, it's Peter Jackson basically. Peter Jackson did not want the pay cut because obviously he's still being massively involved and needs to be paid. Um, Microsoft is still not budging about paying anything, so everything broke down. Um, and as with most, so like I said before, as with most unmade films, it's down to money and down to control. Um, but Blomkamp uh, went on to make District 9 with Peter Jackson's help. Um, he didn't want to make Halo after that. Um, he admitted that maybe his version probably wasn't the version that studios wanted and probably wasn't. It, I think it, it would have been good, and he said that it, it making it gritty maybe went away from some of the aspects of the game because because if you play the games before there are these there's a species of alien called grunts and they're very childlike and they kind of run away from stuff and they're they're kind of funny but you couldn't have had those in a gritty war film so uh things like that wouldn't necessarily have worked um but Blomkamp is kind of known for his own style he doesn't work on these big franchises he's done his own things still um, and he kind of prefers the control, having this kind of control of small films rather than kind of doing bits and pieces and working within someone else's uh, playbox. Um, and so kind of in hindsight, it seems like a bad fit. Obviously, he, he was up and coming. He hadn't really made anything yet. So, um, well, yeah, but 15 years later down the line, like now, Blomkamp has apparently said that he would make it if someone would ask him to make Halo. But nobody's asking and, like, I mean, I wonder why, because you said earlier that you didn't want to make it. Um, but, I mean, it's not all down to him, because Microsoft clearly didn't want to make it. Uh, they didn't want to put the effort in into making it, and they haven't made anything since. So, um, And Microsoft just seemed like an absolute bitch to work with. So, I think Blomkamp's Halo would have been interesting. I think maybe it's not the space adventure that Halo sort of deserves. Maybe not the kind of Star Wars scale space opera thing that you you want from a halo film but i think it would have been a good film um and i think so if you've ever played played the games i think odst um he if you'd have done like if you'd had an established halo film franchise if you'd given a, an odst to neil blomkamp i think that would have worked well because i think some of the adverts that he did were kind of odst related and i think they worked really well because that's more of a ground unit and kind of it's all set in like a city rather than kind of big 
big battles on different planets and things. So I think that would have worked well um, if if that had happened, but it didn't. All right, let's go to the last part of the show, um, which is quick fic. So we've had some facts, but now we're going to for some fiction. Uh, for those not aren't aware, this is where I take one of 20 characters that I've put in a pot. It's a big pot. I've stirred it around. I've got a, got a nice broth from it. I take one of 20 characters and I take one of 20 film franchises that's in a separate pot that is also smelling lovely. I then decide, then have to have the pleasure of going into another plot and picking out whether it's going to be a prequel, sequel, spin-off or reboot. And I then have to try and come up with a film idea for for that. Uh, examples that we have had are last week I had Shrek. I had a sequel to Back to the Future with Shrek in it. Um, so that's the sort of thing you can look forward to. Let's see what kind of film we're making. It's a sequel. We're making a sequel with the Minions. If you'll remember, we put the Minions in the Fast and Furious franchise not too long ago. And we will be making a sequel to the Fast and the Furious. This is a bit... Hmm. I mean... Hmm. What are the chances of that? Uh, What I'm going to do, because I've already done a spin-off of Fast and Furious with the Minions in it, I'm going to actually switch it around we're going to go again because I feel that it wasn't going to happen. It would have been nice to have the minions in a different thing or someone else in the Fast and Furious franchise because there are only 20 in, in each of these things. And I keep it. The pot's the same. The pot's the same. It looks, smells great, tastes great. Why change it? So we are, we're going to go again. Uh, we're still making a sequel because I did press it again. But we're going to put John Rambo in something this time and he's going in the ghostbusters oh we're making a sequel of ghostbusters with john rambo when i say a sequel it'll be well i guess it could be a, a sequel to any either or any uh anything really maybe how about this how about this we have well the obvious the obvious thing was is that you make john rambo a Ghostbuster. But how's that going to work? I don't think that's going to work. The other thing is that I think would work well though is he's killed a lot of people. So maybe he just gets massively haunted and he has to call in the Ghostbusters and they give him a gun and then he's then shooting ghosts like nobody's business. Boom, 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 boom. Um, I think that would work a lot. Um, maybe the Ghostbusters are like, we need someone who can actually shoot and actually do stuff as well as we do the science, they do the action. So maybe there's too much to handle and they go, we need a we need a, a guy who's tormented by the Vietnam War. That's what we need. We need a guy who's very oily and rubbery and killed some Mexicans in the last one, I think. Last Blood. I don't know. I've never seen any of them. Uh, but... Did Rambo come up earlier today? I feel it came up earlier. Anyway, yeah, Rambo 3, the one that had a lesser kill count than the first purge. Anyway, um, yeah, you. so that's the two options. You basically, you make him a Ghostbuster because they need someone, or you make him the kind of the person that is haunted by ghosts, and then he gets to be a Ghostbuster anyway. There's no 
Or there's no other way, really. The other, the only other way is that maybe he dies and he becomes the ghost and he's just shooting everybody. I don't know. Um, yeah, maybe the maybe it turns out retroactively that Rambo, the first Rambo, when he's like tormented of all these PTSD things, it's just people haunting him. That would be a way to ruin that franchise for people that like it. I don't care. I haven't seen them, but um, I think those are all fun ideas. Um, if you have any ideas of your own of how to make a sequel to Ghostbusters with John Rambo, uh, please let me know on Twitter at AllOutWalker or uh, or by email at filmyuppod at outlook.com. That applies for the same if you have seen any of the films that we talked about today and you would like to discuss them too or if you have any recommendations or you have any thoughts on Halo or Tenet, um, yeah, those details are still the same. They're not going to change. Next week, I will be doing set E. We'll be back to alpha set. Um, I will be tweeting them out again on Monday. I did tweet them out uh, this week. So if you've seen the list and you've seen the films, then great. But if not, got another week um, to to see the list and see the films. I will be posting them out again on Twitter at all at Walker. but for now, uh, that's it. Done. Wrapped up. Another week. See you later. Alligator. Bye.